The second lesson from scripture comes from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. I will read chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not without eloquent wisdom, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? God, we look and listen for a word from you to give us a point of view that is more than our own. Help us to chew on it and savor it, and finally to be made well by it. Amen. Every time I visit my parents, I also visit a close family friend, Ann Brooks. Anne is a lifelong Methodist, and no matter what the Methodists are going through and what her views on the issues are, she sticks with them. Since I was five years old, I have heard her speak passionately about all those issues at our dinner table. I have come to marvel at her trustworthy commitment both to the local United Methodist Church in our town and to the larger United Methodist denomination. I've often thought to myself that her willingness to stick with her church, even when she has passionately disapproved of its action or inaction, has reflected the nature of being part of a worldwide de denomination. As members of a worldwide denomination, the United Methodists have made all their decisions together. This means that churches on different continents have suffered one another's votes. For the past 40 years, the United Methodist Church has been debating same-sex marriage and LGBTQ ordination, and unable to resolve arguments about same-sex marriage, the denomination is splitting. The United Methodist Church and a new breakaway denomination the Global Methodist Church, have lawyered up, and the split will be costly and messy. William Williman, one of the most well-known bishops in the United Methodist Church in our continent, writes about this. 
while many of his friends say to him, let him go. He finds it painfully hard to do so. In one of his essays on this topic, he writes, caucusing is easy. Church is hard. Unable to convert you to my point of view, I'll hunker down with people who think as I do and call that ecclesia. We thereby say to the world that Jesus Christ can't make and sustain community. William Willimon stands in a long line of those who urge church unity. Writing to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul is doing just that. While Paul has been away from the church, he has received word from Chloe's people that the members are quarreling. They are fighting over a host of issues, social issues, economic divisions, philosophical differences, religious knowledge, and spiritual gifts. Underlying all this, he finds, is a battle for who belongs. It's really not that surprising given that Paul has attempted what scarcely anyone had tried to do before. Paul tried to plant a church composed of rich and poor, Jew and Greek, slave and free. Even today, Paul's is a radical vision of belonging. Attempting to stake out their sense of belonging and even to gain the upper hand, the Corinthians are forming factions. Paul hears that people have been saying, I belong to Paul, I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Apollos, and so on. Rival factions were forming around their favored leaders, around the people who had baptized them into the church. Such factions, Paul saw, were absurd. To draw out the absurdity of these allegiances, Paul adds that some even say, I belong to Jesus Christ, as though Christ were among all the options, as though everyone who is baptized were not baptized in the name of Christ. If this were the case, would Christ have said, I belong to John, who baptized him? To drive home his point, Paul asks, is Christ divided? To some extent, each of us has received our faith from someone else. We inherit our faith from people whom we trust and to whom we have formed a loyalty. My faith has been shaped first by my parents and then by my teachers and mentors. For better or worse, that is just the way it is. Our faith is social. Paul understands that astutely. Paul knows that the Corinthians' faith in Christ didn't come independently from others. Their faith was formed by way of their relationships with teachers and mentors and apostles. He knows that in many cases he was the person who handed them over to their faith in Christ. Knowing this, when Paul says to them, imitate me, he is always careful to add, as I imitate Christ. The recognition that a Christian's only appropriate allegiance and reference is Jesus has been depicted over centuries in Christian art. 
It is clearly depicted in Matthias Grunewald's Isenheim altarpiece. There, John the Baptist is depicted as pointing to Jesus on the cross with this oversized finger. Lucas Cronach's portrait also an altarpiece in Wittenberg, Germany, depicts Martin Luther preaching and pointing to Jesus on the cross. I came across both of these artworks in reading an essay in the Christian Century magazine entitled, It's Not About Me. Given how we have had such a hand in, another's faith form in one another's faith formation, it is imperative that we take care not to form the kinds of social allegiances that we tend to form in other arenas of our lives. In the long history of the United States, political parties as we know them today began to take shape as early as 1793. George Washington was the only president in our country's history who did not represent a political party. And the Constitution that he helped to draft makes no mention of political parties. As you may know, in his farewell address of 1796, George Washington warned against forming political parties because he believed that parties would destroy the unity necessary for a democratic republic to survive. The existence of political parties, he said, serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one's part against another, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passion. He goes on to say, there is an opinion that parties in free countries are useful checks upon the administration of the government and serve to keep alive the spirit of liberty. But in those of the popular character, in governments that are purely elective, it is a spirit not to be encouraged. From their natural tendency, it is certain that there will always be enough of that spirit for every salutary purpose, and there being constant danger of excess, the effort ought to be by force of public opinion to mitigate and assuage it. A fire not to be quenched, it demands a uniform vigilance to prevent its bursting into a flame, lest instead of warming, it should consume. End of quote. So all-consuming have parties become in our nation's governance that it is hard to imagine that our nation ever began without them. Sean Westwood, a professor in the Department of Government at Dartmouth College, studies political behavior. In particular, he examines how partisanship affects the behavior of citizens. It's an understatement to say that the role of partisanship has been changing in this country. What used to play a role in political conflicts on issues like taxes and abortion seems now to be a prism through which almost everything is being seen, even people themselves. Partisan bias has become a lens through which we make judgments, 
negative or positive about people. Dr. Westwood says, partisanship for a long period of time wasn't viewed as part of who we are. But in the modern era, we view party identity as something akin to gender, ethnicity, or race. In this way, partisanship, he says, is operating increasingly as racism does. That more and more we apply our partisan bias on people is, of course, a problem. It is a problem because partisanship leads to tribalism, feeling negatively about people who don't agree with us, and positively when we're around people who do agree with us. We tend to hang out only with people who share our same biases. We tend toward tribalism. It's no wonder why we do this. We all understand the tendency. Life in a tribe is just easier. With shared assumptions, trust is high in a tribe. And we can even use this trust as a shortcut for all kinds of things, even for what we believe. If trust and the things that flow from it, things like social cohesion, are high in a tribe, you can guess that trust and social cohesion will be low in communities or societies marked by high diversity. In fact, a number of sociological studies have shown that there is a negative relationship between social cohesion and diversity. Sociological studies like these show descriptively what is the case. They do not show what should or could be the case. The church that Paul is trying to create in which there are no divisions among persons and in which everyone is united in the same mind and the same purpose is really hard work. It would be hard to create a community that is high in diversity and high in trust. But just because it's hard work doesn't mean that it's impossible. It is the kind of community that Jesus has proclaimed. When Jesus began his public ministry, it turns out that he pursued people. When he pursued people of all stripes and called on them to become fishers of people, trust was absolutely necessary. The kingdom consists of, above all else, relationships that are trusting. Not wealth, not power, not economic or military might. In the kingdom of God, it is our trust and trustworthiness that Jesus prizes and pursues. Amen. <laughs>